Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hi, buddy. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. When I was at university, we were studying the 1780s and 90s. And we used, as our source material, satirical cartoons from the period. So brilliant were they considered to be by my history professors. They gave you a sense of what Georgians thought about their leaders. And also it gave you a sense of Georgian Britain itself. What kind of country was it that allowed artists, publishers, to lampoon their political leaders their royals, their prime ministers, their MPs, their plutocrats, to regularly portray them in the most grotesque and bizarre ways. Something funny was going on. Well, after a gap of 20 years or so, I get to talk about those cartoons again, because on the podcast today, we're looking at the cartoons of the late Georgian period with no other than Alice Loxton. She is the homegrown history hit breakout talent. She is a force of nature. And just when you think she couldn't get any more brilliant, she has written a book on Georgian satire. It's called Uproar. And she's coming on the podcast to talk about it. Even Alice Oxen works history. You know, she's super important and busy now. So it's just, I'm so lucky to get some space in her diary. <laughs> We're very, very proud of what young Alice Loxton has done. She's going on to big things. This is her first book, first of many, and it is going to be a massive success. And here she is talking about Uproar and Georgian satire. Enjoy. T minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And lift off, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Alice Loxton, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's brilliant to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's exciting, isn't it? And also it's exciting because, as you know, this is my jam as well. You and I share a great love of Georgian politics. But where have you chosen to start? Where's your great age of satire beginning? Well, the book tells the story of a set of revolutionary artists. So it follows their lives 
from start to end. So it starts kind of mid-century when they're born and then ends probably between 1810s and the 1820s. But of course, when they really get going, it's about the 1780s. So that's probably where the book really starts. And that's when their satire kicks off. So that's good. There was a lot to satirise in the 1780s, one of the most catastrophic periods of British history. The American colonies gone. <laughs> Battle of Yorktown, Lord North, hopeless, three prime ministers in a year. What an absolute scandal that would be. <laughs> Is it all about talent, opportunity, timing? Are these people particularly talented? Was there a weird little cadre or was it the times they lived in made it like a bit of an open goal for lampooning politicians? <laughs> Well, it's a combination of all those things, really. The times that they lived in were brilliant for this kind of content. You know, it was one of the most dramatic periods in British history. So many challenges came their way. For example, political crisis of William Pitt, the prime minister, being 24 years old, or the struggles that George III had with his illness or his madness. And then, of course, the French Revolution and then the rise of Napoleon and all these European wars. But within that, there was this incredible cast of characters Characters. William Pitt, the younger, being this kind of tall, skinny, very sensible, very diligent man in the House of Commons. And then he had opposite him Charles James Fox, who was almost the opposite of that and incredibly louche and would come in drunk, you know, not properly dressed, but would really charm the room. And in their own ways, they were both brilliant. And then, of course, there was George III, the kind of frugal king who was known to be a bit of a farmer, who was mocked for having a boiled egg at breakfast. <laughs> and then opposite him, there was his son, who was, again, the complete opposite, almost the most despicable man that's ever sat on the throne. So we've got this brilliant cast of characters that I think Shakespeare himself would be pleased to have created. And then coupled with that are some of the most creative set of artists I think we've ever had in this country. These are the kind of people who, if they lived today, would be marketing, advertising geniuses because they would be able to think of images that would just stay with you forever. You know, they'd be able to change great events with an image or set up great campaigns or advertising campaigns that would be the best of the century. And their names, were James Gilray, Isaac Cruikshank and Thomas Ronanson, Gilray being the most famous. They created these images which basically they were educated in a world of high art taught at the Royal Academy schools by the likes of Joshua Reynolds. They were taught ideals of classical grandeur. And the idea was that they would go on and make great paintings that would be in the grand houses of Britain, great stately homes like Reynolds did. But they didn't do that. They actually applied these skills to what was considered low art. So satire that you could buy in the streets of London. So it created this middle ground and people went mad for this. And the reason they went mad for it was because they were really brilliant images. They were so weird and surreal. We think Dali was surreal and inventive, but actually Gilray was creating these kind of weird images over a hundred years before, and they were just exceptionally well executed. Their use of line and image and text and classical allegory combined with ordinary everyday humour and the way that they could capture the follies and foibles of everyday life so effectively made them some of the most popular kind of art that was consumed of the day. Is there anything technologically going on or is it just that these people were absolutely brilliant and the times they needed satirising? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there wasn't really any technological development. There was no reason why people couldn't have done this years before. It was the creativity of the artists using the tools that had been accessible for people for ages that really pushed it forward. They were the first ones to have this education at the Royal Academy schools and be very good at actually the craftsmanship and then applying that to humour. So I suppose that was the new skill that was coming into the satirical art world. Definitely the thing that sold it was the creativity and the brilliance of Gilray in particular. And they're so interesting because they're very, sometimes it's sort of classical illusion and biblical quotes and hugely clever, but they're also seriously crude as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to talk about these prints because there were so many of them. They did satirise everyone and everything in society. So, okay, there were politicians and celebrities and ordinary people, but as you say, some of them were incredibly rude. Pornographic, you could definitely say. And indeed, that was something which people didn't quite so like in the Victorian period. And we know that Prince Albert destroyed some of the uh, less PG ones in the Royal Collection. So, that is part of the reason why they go out of fashion in the Victorian era. They suddenly look back at these Georgian satirists and think that they are the crudest and the rudest and the, the worst kind of artists with terrible taste. In some ways, that's why they were so brilliant at the time and why people still like them. Your work's quite challenging because we don't really think of these people as like up there as the great artists of British history. But is it the Victorians didn't include them in the kind of canon of great artists because they were seen as sort of crude and naughty? Yes, I mean, I think that's why I've written the book in that we often think of them because they were in this world of low art, you know, because you could see them in the streets and because they weren't in grand frames. They were considered at the time and mistaken at the time for just being kind of tradesmen or craftsmen. But actually, when I look at these images, I think these are some of the greatest works that we've ever seen in this country. And I really want to raise them to the status of a great artist, along with Reynolds or Turner or Gainsborough or Constable. But yeah, one of the great reasons why we don't know anything about them today is because the Victorians just decided that that late Georgian era where people almost lived life to the full and they drank a great deal and they did everything in excess. This was an age where the glass wasn't half empty or half full. It was full to the brim and overflowing, but it really went out of fashion in the Victorian age. And it's never recovered for various reasons. You know, it hasn't really rejoined the public consciousness at any point. And I'm on a mission to reintroduce these artists to the public. This is the Gilray comeback tour. <laughs> As someone that knows and loves you, I think that if Alex Lotston puts her mind to something, then uh, <laughs> I think that thing tends to happen. So get ready for <laughs> everyone so. to see a lot of 18th century satirists back in the mainstream. Tell me about how it all happened. Like, were they published simultaneously across the country? How did people access these? How quickly would they turn them around? So these prints were created very, very quickly after the events that they are describing. So for the political images, say there was a scandal that happened, they could turn them around within a day or two days. And I think that's what's exciting about it, because you know that they would have read a report or they might have read something in the newspaper or they would have seen the speech in the House of Commons and 
immediately, as newspaper journalists do today, they run back to the office and try and write an article or they'll try and get it in the headlines for tomorrow's newspaper. And it was exactly the same with satirists. And what's great fun is that you can take one event, say the point where George III is suffering from his madness in 1788-1789. There are multiple prints which come out over that period and they're all kind of interchanging with the same ideas and playing with each other and bouncing off each other because there are so many. And if you compare that to other kind of forms of commentary or other forms of visual commentary, paintings which depict great events, they're much more thought through and curated and photoshopped and airbrushed, whereas these are kind of immediate reactions, which makes them great fun. And there are a couple of ones where you can see that they've been influenced by another print that's gone out a couple of days before. And so I love thinking about the way that these artists would have been walking around London, because we know where the print shops were, and they would have looked at that print shop window and thought, oh, that's a good idea, and then gone home worked away overnight, frantically trying to get it out, and then given their version of those events and put them in the print shop window the next day. So it's a pretty exciting, fast and very reactive process. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about Georgian satire with the brilliant Alice Loxton. More after this. This is After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you. 
Were they friends with each other or were they vicious competitors? How did it all work? Well, that's a great question. The reason that I was attracted to this subject was that I realised that because they're all dated and there are so many of them, we know exactly when they were produced and we know that there were a lot of them produced and they're all very close to each other, kind of Piccadilly, Strand, um, Bond Street. And lots of them were working with the same print shop owners and they were commissioned by the same people. So I know that they would have been crossing paths all the time. The question is, were they competitors or were they good friends? I think that they wouldn't have been necessarily particular rivals. I mean, this is kind of speculation because we don't know that much about it. We do know that they went to the pub together. There's an episode where Rowlandson and Gilray go to the pub together and that's recorded, but there's not that much evidence or original sources about what they were up to in their lives. It can be quite hard to work that out. But my sense is that they were creating this new kind of genre together and they were working with so many of the same people. They were kind of overlapping so much that they probably would have been kind of friendly, I think. Sounds like me and Tom Holland, fellow podcast host. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You get all the history podcasters together. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. Was it loved by all sections of Georgian society or did the ruling class hate it and try and close down print shops and get rid of it all and suppress it? So in general, people loved these prints because of the quality of what the content was. And one account records it as veritable madness when the next print was put up. You know, this was a real kind of Beatlemania of the day. But of course, for those who were actually satirised, as is the case today, perhaps that was less comfortable. And there are some cases of people being quite unhappy with the way that they're depicted. But having said that, in general, people have kind of accepted it. I mean, there are episodes where Charles James Fox, who is perhaps the greatest victim of, of Gilray's acerbic wit, once walks into Hannah Humphrey's print shop, who was the print shop owner, and he looks at them and he thinks, oh dear, you know, there I am again, but kind of buys a few and then walks out. Or we know that the royals collected them and had them at their breakfast table and they were the subject of many of these prints. There were some cases of politicians desperate to be in the prints because it was seen as a mark of you're in the political bubble, you're in the political world. We know that George Canning, who later became prime minister, went, <laughs> he had this real effort to try and be in a Gilray print and he didn't want to kind of be too obvious about it. So he tried to make all these kind of chance meetings and happened to bump into Gilray. So he, he like created these things like, oh, I'll drop off that painting for you so that I can happen to bump into Gilray at his house. There's some hilarious accounts of when he keeps expecting that he's going to be in a print and and he isn't. And there are accounts of when he suddenly realises he's not and he falls about crying all over the place. This is what the original source says. But eventually Gilray does put him in a print, but it's not in the kind of way that you might expect to be depicted. It's not particularly dignified because the very first appearance of Canning is him hanging from a lamppost in Piccadilly. So maybe Gilray's having a bit of a joke with him there. But I'm sure Canning was delighted. You know, he's finally made it as kind of a mark of approval of mark that you're important enough to be featured. So it's a real mix as it is today with cartoons. I mean, I once talked to George Osborne about this because he was at this Gilray event and he said, obviously, he's been a feature of uh, many quite brutal cartoons and he's also commissioned them. He was saying that, you know, it is kind of mark that you're worth talking about if you're featured yourself. What are some of your favourites? I mean, I love the predictable ones uh, as a non-expert like you, but I love William Pitt and Napoleon Bonaparte chopping up the world where Napoleon is taking Europe and Pitt seems to be taking 
the rest of the world. And it's called, it's about the plum pudding, isn't it? That's it. Whether or not it's super funny anymore, I don't know if the humour is endured, but it's just a brilliant image of the early 19th century and the attempt by Pitt and Napoleon to come to an understanding. Absolutely. I mean, let's talk about that one because some people have said this is the most famous cartoon that's ever been made. It's an image of William Pitt, who was the Prime Minister, and Napoleon. And it's actually on the cover of my book. You know, that's the one that we went for to really oh, summarise okay. these I'm artists. I'm so predictable. I'm so predictable. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it is the one that if I say to people, I've written a book about Gilray, you know, they've often never heard of Gilray. But if I show them that picture, then they suddenly kind of know what I'm talking about. So it is familiar to people. And it depicts these two characters and they appear to be cutting up a plum pudding, a steaming plum pudding, which was a popular dish at the time. But actually, this isn't a plum pudding. What we're actually looking at when you look closely is the globe, the great globe itself. And you can see that Pitt's cutting up a great slice of ocean that represents Britain's naval power at the time. And then Napoleon's got his own slice, which is Europe. And Great Britain is right in the middle. So it's this allegory, really, for these great nations and their insatiable appetites, carving up the world, taking control of all these other parts of the world. Because of that, it's been used again and again and again by modern cartoonists. And they just replace it with other characters. So Trump, Thatcher, Cameron, Johnson, May, Putin, everyone has been in this image and it's been used again and again. And the plum pudding has been replaced itself by the COVID virus or the AstraZeneca vaccine or a great baked bean. So it's <laughs> it's been useful for cartoonists ever since, really. Was this only in Britain? Were they allowed to do this in places on the continent? No. So this is what's really interesting is that the rules were much more lax here. So and foreign visitors were often shocked at the fact that there could be a print shop opposite a royal palace. And in that print shop, they would post hideous images of the royals and they could get away with it and they weren't told off. And that was just allowed and accepted. This wasn't allowed in other countries the rules were just far stricter. And it did create this image, I think, in lots of British people's minds about Britain being this great bastion of freedom and liberty. Whether that's true or not is another matter. But in other countries, they were really celebrated. There's a German magazine called London and Paris, where they loved hearing all the details about Hannah Humphrey's print shop and the latest Gilray print and the latest account of who was buying what. And it was a source of great fascination for other the nations, really. Alice, let me just talk with you there because we should talk about Hannah Humphrey. Who's she and what's she got to do with the artists? Hannah Humphrey was an entrepreneurial woman. She was quite an impressive woman, really. And she owned a print shop of her own. She was the one who did the business. Okay. So we have these artists who are really chaotic and they <laughs> drink a lot and they're kind of hard to deal with in lots of ways. But Hannah Humphrey is the one who's got the print shop, who commissions the prints, who does the deals, and she's selling it at the front. And I often think about her as the agent behind the scenes who really makes things happen. She's a bit like a kind of Simon Cowell figure. <laughs> if these artists are... The pop stars that are, get all the credit. Hannah Humphrey's behind the scenes making it happen. What's a real shame about her is that there isn't much recorded about her, perhaps because she's a woman, perhaps this often happens to women in history. And so when you're writing a history book, it's quite hard to talk about her a lot because there aren't really that many original sources. 
But if you were making a movie, say, where you could fill in these gaps, then Hannah Humphrey would be at the very centre of it. She could be the main character making all of these things happen, running this empire. And it's really impressive to read about her and to see what she was up to because you don't think about the reality, perhaps, of these prints being sold. And that was actually a big job to do, to keep all of these things under control. So Hannah Humphrey is a, is a great woman. Let's finish by saying Britain has continued to have like a really celebrated and dynamic satirical cartoon culture, and it goes on right until this day. I mean, are today's cartoonists the direct descendants, really, of this golden era that you're describing? Oh, absolutely. They really are. And they would say so themselves. I've asked lots of them, and they, you know, the first thing they say is Gilray's my hero. And they not only use the visuals and the lines and the text in the same way that the Georgian satirists kind of established, but they actually use the same images. And so lots of prints you'll look at in the newspapers by people like Gerald Scarf or Martin Rosen will say at the bottom, this is after Gilray or the original is Gilray. So they're totally indebted to Gilray. And it's not just cartoons, it's all sorts of kind of satire in media. So thinking about, have I got news for you? Or private eye or spitting image. It's that kind of acerbic humour that still survives. And even spitting image, the creators of that said that they owed Gilray a royalty payment for how much they were influenced by Gilray's work and how much Gilray's work shaped what they created. So Gilray's work, it definitely survives within cartoons today. But I think, you know, you could trace a lot of what we perceive as Britishness and British sense of humour to these artists. And in so many ways, we are the children of Gilray. And I just hope that this book sets on course people's interest and delight in this period of history. It sure will, Alice Loxton. You bring all the enthusiasm <laughs> and knowledge to it that has made you so famous. So thank you very much indeed. What's the book called? So it's called Uproar and it's out now. Good luck with it. Thank you so much, Dan. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.